Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing all right? Merry Christmas. You look great. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. We're going to be in Luke 15. Luke 15. Uh, this is the third week of this series, and he shall be called. I think hopefully you've picked up on this by now. We're grabbing that language from Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before a little eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus shows up on the scene, this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this week we are talking about Everlasting Father. Now each one of these um, titles or labels that's given to Jesus by the prophet Isaiah, they, they have a descriptor, right? So like Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And so we get, before we get to the Father part in Luke 15, I want to hang out on Everlasting for just a second. You see, hopefully you are catching on around here, if you're in 1122 or if you've been here for any time at all, that we are making a big, big deal about what a big deal God is, that he is everlasting, that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, that he is omniscient, that he is immutable, he does not change. The way the psalmist says it in Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 through 4 is this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth or or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. So you get this? Really big God, little speck of dust, me and you. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. This is what this, is what this before all things journey has been all about, that for Two years we're on this discipleship journey to declare that he is before all things. And I know we read it during our first worship song, but some of you may not have been here. So let me uh, repeat Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be pre Imminent. So we're on this two-year journey just celebrating and declaring that, that he is preeminent, that he is before all things. In other words, the point of 1122 is not 1122. The point of 1122 is Jesus, and as a church made up of a bunch of individuals, we collectively and individually are hoping, hoping we're declaring that he is before all things, and the way we declare it to this world is through a bunch of initiatives that God has called us to do. So I know we've got a bunch of brand new people here. We always have brand new people here. We're stoked that you're here. And so uh, we just want to show you this video to catch you up on what it looks like for our church to declare that he is before all things. Take just a second and check this out. Before All Things is a two-year generosity journey that we began in November of last year, and God has been doing incredible things through it. In 2016, God has blessed 1122 as we continued to cultivate ministry. We've continued to glorify God with weekend services that focus on worship and word. 
In just one year, 154 people surrendered their life to Christ during Easter. 309 people were baptized at Beach Baptism. Hundreds of new people who attend weekend services have joined a disciple group to deepen their relationship with God through Bible study. More kids attend our new gen worship experience on a regular basis than ever before. And more and more people have committed to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Knowing that Christ is before all things puts my possessions, my money, my time, my resources, it puts all of it in perspective. God is before all of it, and He's called us as His children. That's where to follow after Him and seek Him and surrender to Him, and it's everything. We've also begun the work of putting down roots at San Pablo and Beach by beginning the process of purchasing the Walmart building at San Pablo. Because of the generosity of some of the friends of 1122 and the wisdom of the elders, we locked in a purchase price years ago that is far under the market value of that location. That purchase will be complete in 2017. You feel very comfortable and you feel like everybody is very easygoing and, you know, so it makes you feel very um, welcome and comfortable. I want to give myself entirely to God. I really do. I mean, he has really, really spoken in my heart and told me to be here and told me to, you know, last thing I've ever thought is I'd be talking to a young man telling him that I finally understand that I have a relationship now with God. When I found this church, it changed everything. It just like fast forwarded my faith, light years. And it's amazing how quickly that transformation happened. This has also been an incredible year for planting the gospel. In January of 2016, we opened the Bay Meadows location, which is led by Pastor Ryan Stone. It is the same experience as our San Pablo location and allows the people that call the Bay Meadows area home to bring their friends and neighbors to 1122. So we've been going to Bay Meadows. You know, we wanted to go out there and help him launch. And um, Stone at the end of the service stood in front and said, you know, that you never, you never can go wrong and you're never disappointed when you're obedient to what God's telling you to do. And I found that to be true in my walk. And it was like there was no question that I needed to step out. And in January of 2017, our third location will be launched in Mandarin, led by Pastor Ben Phillips. We can't wait to see what God does there. And lastly, we've been sowing gospel seeds right here in Jacksonville and around the world. Our goal was to plant 100 churches in East Africa and Brazil. And in 2016, we planted over 58 churches with the help of our partners. Over 502 pastors are in training and 28 buildings have been built for local church bodies to gather. God has obviously done some incredible things in 2016 and this is only the beginning. As we look ahead to 2017, we believe God is going to change even more people's lives through radical generosity and bring about even more miraculous things through the continuation of these four gospel-centered initiatives. Amen, amen, amen. It is amazing what God can do when you declare and put him before all things. And again, the point of all of that is to remind us of, of what God wants to do in us, through us, and to us.
but it's not for us, it's all for him. That the point of 1122 is not 1122. That the only name that deserves any glory is the name of Jesus. And so it's a part of what Isaiah is saying here when he says everlasting father. And I think, I think some of us can kind of get our head around sort of the everlasting part. If you didn't listen to, if you weren't here last week, Pastor Britt talked about mighty God and what a mighty God we serve and how big and omnipotent he is that he spoke everything into existence. And so when Isaiah, after he gets done with mighty God, when he goes to everlasting father, it almost sounds like an oxymoron. Like everlasting judge, okay, everlasting creator, gotcha. Everlasting, um, you know, all-powerful one, all right, but everlasting dad, it's almost like the two things don't go together. A.W. Tozer, this is the most quoted thing around here, I think, at this church. A.W. Tozer says this, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. So when you think about God, what comes to your mind? Because you can't rightly love God if you don't rightly think about God. And so a lot of times we think about God kind of like the force, you know. A new Star Wars is coming out. We're like, yeah, I think God's like that. Like it's this sort of, you know, ominous force out there, and he's sort of in charge of stuff. And there's the light side and the dark side, and they're battling out. We'll see who wins in the end. But you can't, you can't know him. Some people believe God's sort of like a force. Some people, some people think God's sort of like Grandpa God. You know, they'll call him the man upstairs. But he's super old. He's like forever and he's totally out of touch with the world. He can't get on the internet, and he's not sure about our TV shows, and he hates our music, and he dresses weird. But every Sunday, he turns up to his miracle ear, see what I did there, and he scoots his throne over to the edge of heaven to listen to his children sing. Some people think, you know, there's Grandpa God. And some people believe God's sort of like a referee or a cop, that he's just waiting to get you. He's waiting for you to do something wrong, and then he's going to blow the whistle and, and throw the flag, right? Like your date Friday night, Brrr, illegal use of hands, you 15 yards, go to hell. That's what you think he is. <laughs> Some people think God's like a lawyer, and you're always in constant negotiation. Okay, God, I see your commandment. I raise you some grace. Uh, if I do this, can I do that? If I, if I go to disciple group, will you also give me this job promotion? I mean, can we negotiate? If you get me out of this one, I promise I'll never do this again. Some people think God is, is a lawyer, kind of lawyer God. Some people believe God is kind of clockmaker God. Like how else could you explain all of this world? It, it couldn't just happen, but maybe God put all the pieces together and then wound it up and sort of set us on our axis, and now he's off in some other part of the universe doing whatever he wants to do. But he's not like close. Now, some people believe in sort of like um, uh, prom boyfriend Jesus God, okay? Like you love Jesus, you have a lot of emotions for him, but you think of Jesus like this Swedish guy, blonde hair, straight, you know, no split ends, Miss America sash, bathrobe. His feet doesn't move when he walks. He just kind of hovers around. And once a week, you want to, like, come slow dance with him and sing so songs and get all these kind of fuzzy feelings. And if you don't have these feelings for Jesus, then you think something's wrong with, with you and Jesus. And then some, this is probably the most common, some people believe in kind of own star God. You know own star? Some of you have it in your cars. And when you want something, you need it, you push the button and you ask. And that's, that's kind of own star God. I remember the first time I was ever in a car that had own star. It was, I don't know, it was 10 years ago. This buddy of mine got a brand new Suburban. And I, we were in Atlanta together at this thing, and then I had to go speak at another thing. And I said, can I borrow your Suburban? And he was like, sure. And when I got in it, I just I couldn't, I mean, there's OnStar. I thought, this is cool. And so I'm on the way home from my speaking engagement, and I hit it. Bing. And they say, hello, Mr. Tiller, because it was Gary Tiller's car, the guy that used to work at Beach, okay? And I go, yeah. And they say, how can, how can we help you? I go, I need, um, I'm kind of hungry. I need a Waffle House. And they say, good news, you're in Georgia. Take any exit, turn left or right, and boom, you were there at the Waffle House. 
So sometimes it's what we think, right? We think if we, can, if we can pray the right prayer, if we can say it the right way, it's kind of genie God, right? He's going to have to show up and he owes us our, our three wishes. Well, Jesus primarily wants us to know God as Father. 189 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to the Almighty God as Father. And here's what's hard for us to get our mind around. That God is everlasting Father. That he is preeminent and intimate. Now, here's the problem when we talk about dads. Ready? <clears throat> um, we all have daddy issues. Every single one of us have daddy issues. Whether you got a great dad or a terrible dad, it's a room full of people with daddy issues, which makes me scratch my head and wonder what kind of issues I'm creating for my kids right now. But we do. You want to see some grown men cry? Get them together around a campfire. Give them just a little bit of liquid courage and be like, all right, boys, let's talk about our dads for a minute. And I'm talking about snot fest. 99, that's what happens. And so, for some people, the image of, of, of God the Father, Father might help you, but there's a whole lot of people that, that it doesn't help them a lot. Because your relationship with your father is the most influential relationship in your entire life. Well, even, and if you say, I didn't have one, then that was the most influential thing in your life. But here's something you just gotta hear. God is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of what it means to be dad. And so, um, I, I ask, I, I don't really do interviews around here anymore for staff positions. They kind of kick me out of that, and so uh, it's probably a good idea. But if I ever do, when I'm ever in an interview with somebody that we're trying to hire here, I ask one question. So tell me about your relationship with your dad, and I can find out everything I need to know as to whether they need to work here or not. It is the most influential relationship in our Life, And then I even think about my relationship with my dad. You know, I don't know if you were here last week, but um, Pastor Britt talked about his relationship, his ongoing relationship with his father. And I don't know if you've heard Pastor Stone ever preach about his relationship with his father. They have amazing relationships, and their, and their dads are amazing men. Both of the Ryan's dads were pastors, are pastors. And they discipled them and did Bible study with them and cast a biblical worldview for them. And if you remember last week, Pastor Britt said, my dad knew that his job as a father was not to raise a good citizen, but to raise a missionary. <laughs> my daddy did not raise a missionary. All right, we didn't grow up doing this. Do you know what we grew up doing? Fishing. Not for men, like Jesus said, for brim and bass. That's what we grew up fishing, all right, in a John boat. And honestly, man, as I was reflecting this week on, on just on my dad and my relationship with my dad, we've never once done Bible study together, ever. He's never said, can I pray for you? The only time we, we've ever even prayed in the same room, not counting if he was at a church service or something, is my grandma makes my dad pray for dinner like at Thanksgiving and stuff. And he does the same exact one every single time. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for these and all our many blessings. In Christ's sake, name, amen. All right, I can't even understand it. It's like speaking in tongues. Like I have an interpretation. The food is ready. All right, that's what we do. <laughs> Never talked about mission or any of that. Okay, any of that. Our dads are very, very different. And yet, and yet, even though he's not even really a church guy, and yet, the, the image that I have of God as father helps me a whole bunch. Because let me tell you something about Perry Martin, my daddy. He's a good, good man. And he, and he loved me and my brother. I mean, we are, he's a good father, I know that, and we are loved by him. 
He didn't do the church thing. Not the most overly affectionate guy you ever met in your life, okay? Uh, first time he ever told me he loved me was I was 22 years old on Father's Day. First time I ever heard it out loud from him. But I never had a doubt, okay? Not a super affectionate guy, not a lot of hugs and kisses. When JP, my son, was about, I don't know, two years old, I gave him a kiss in the car, and my dad was with us. And I was like, Daddy, did you ever kiss me? And he went, on the mouth? Just like that. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Okay? It's just true. And yet, and yet, Man, at great expense to himself, he always covered all of our really wants and needs. Man, my family went through some stuff there for a little while, and my dad was willing to lay down his life for his boys. He coached everything I ever did. He never missed a game. He was there. You know what Jesus promises in Matthew 28, and he says, And lo, I will be with you always. That's my dad. Do you know how many nasty gyms he sat through to watch some stinky wrestling tournament with sorry you know and he would the whole thing last six minutes and he would drive four states away and sit for seven hours to watch me wrestle for six minutes he would in fact on the day we launched this church guess who was sitting on the front row perry martin why because i was going to be up here doing this thing and uh and he sat there front row man front row just like this didn't sing a song just gave ben williams the stink eye the whole time it's kind of loud all right And he loves Ben. He'll say, boy, that Ben Williams, but he can play the guitar, can't he, and sing. I'm like, yeah, Daddy, we should try to sing along. I ain't going to do that, all right? (laughs) But he was here. In fact, I probably shouldn't tell you this. It's going to bother some of you. You'll get over it. On on our opening day back in in 2012, my brother and I take my dad to lunch, and we're always trying to engage him in Jesus' conversation. And so it's hard for me to talk to my dad about my own sermon. In fact, when he ever is here, I don't even preach to y'all. I just preach a salvation sermon to him. And then at the end, I'm like, anybody want to get saved? Raise your hand. No, not yet? Okay, all right. We can go home. All right, that's kind of what I do. So we go to lunch, and my brother, Russ, is engaging my dad and says, so, Daddy, what would you think about the sermon? And during that sermon, um, I do this all the time. I talk about how, you know, some of you don't spank your kids, and we know who they are, all right? Uh, but I didn't grow up in the timeout generation. If you could bring your kid to me, I'd be happy to whip them for you. You know, I kind of did that a little bit. <clears throat> so, so Russ is trying to get Daddy to talk about Jesus and talk about whatever, and, and he says, so, Daddy, what did you think about the sermon? And here's what he said. He goes, <laughs> I like that part where you said, and some of you don't spank little Timmy, and we know, because he's an a-hole. And I was like, whoa, no. <laughs> that is not what I said, okay? So I told you he don't go to church much. I'm just telling you. I wouldn't say that kind of language, but he did. All right, so, and yet, and all of our imperfection, his included, I think, I know a whole, well, I was, I'm a lot better off because of the kind of image my father gave to me and his love and devotion towards us through his actions than a whole bunch of preacher's kids that I know. And so, um, and then it makes me wonder, man, what kind of image am I giving to my children? I sure do hope and pray that when my kids think about God as a heavenly father, that that makes a whole lot of sense to them. And so just as a one-off, can't you see why the enemy would attack fatherhood? If it is the primary way by which Jesus wants us to know God, then then being a dad is totally under attack. 39% of children right now live without their father. Over 50% of children born this year will be born into fatherless homes. We've got a problem. And even, and even with all of that baggage, all of our daddy issues that we all have, even with that, Jesus still wants us to know God primarily, not as judge, not as creator, but he wants us to know him primarily as father. Every time, except one time, I think, in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as father. And that one time was when he was hanging on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22 and he says, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? So what does it mean to be everlasting father? If you go to Luke 15, if you grew up in church, you already know what these parables are. But Luke 15 is this explanation of the real father heart of God. And you've got to understand the first two verses, the context, in order to understand the parables that Jesus lays out. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Now this is a problem for the religious people. When it says tax collectors, don't just think like a legitimate job like you work at IRS, okay? And if you work for the IRS, nobody likes that situation, okay? But, but the first century tax collector, these were people that were extorting their own brothers and sisters, the Jewish people, to, to fund a government terrorist activity of crucifying your brothers and sisters. That's what it would be like. So to say they were hated and despised, we don't even have a category for that. And so that, that group of people, the hated and despised turncoats are there, and the sinners. Now, when we hear sinner, we think, yeah, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But this was a category of people that the religious people had given. This was like professional sinners, prostitutes, like mobsters. And they would also clump people that had any kind of disability. I'm not saying that is a legitimate, that it was totally illegitimate. They had a total misunderstanding that this group of people is worse than all the rest of the group of people. And God somehow hates these people. That, that's, who they, that's who Jesus was attracting. And, it keeps going though, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. So, so you've got like the people that the society and the religious people thought were the worst of the worst. The Pharisees, and, I mean the tax collectors and the sinners. And in the same crowd, you had the religious right. You had the people that never missed Sunday school. You had the people that only listened to Christian music and always wore Christian t-shirts. You know, instead of Sprite, it said spirit. Or instead of Abercrombie, it was like a breadcrumb and fish. And you're like, okay, whatever, all right? On the back of their minivan was the, was the big fish for dad and the medium-sized fish for mom. And each small fish for the children and then one for all the compassion kids. That's that crowd. And the Pharisees and the scribes are the religious people, the church people, are looking down their nose and saying, what are those people doing here, Jesus? I thought you were religious. What are those people doing? And so it's in that context that Jesus is going to tell a trilogy of parables. He tells three, and they all really have the same point. And the point of them all is there's something that's lost. There's someone that pursues that lost thing like crazy. And when that lost thing is found, then there is a celebration that there is a party. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. Suppose you're a shepherd, you got a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost. Don't you leave the 99 and do whatever it takes to go find the one. Or suppose you're a woman that has 10 coins. This was a really big deal. And you can't find one of the coins. At great expense to the other nine, you're willing to flip over your whole house to find that one coin. And then he gets to the third and the most famous one. Suppose you had a son that was lost. Now listen, parents. What would you be willing to do to find your lost child? Whatever it takes. Right? Whatever it takes. And I've told you this before, but it, it just fits. i got to tell you again. Uh, you know, if you're a parent and you've been at some department store or whatever, you've lost your child before, and that is a rough day. Is it not? It's just a rough day. I lost JP years ago at Dick's Sporting Goods. I was there shopping for something very, very important, I'm sure, probably something in a camo, all right? And I'm at the little desk by the guns, and I'm telling him, he was probably about three or four years old, and I just said, stay there, don't move. He said, yes, sir, but like a disobedient little wretched black-hearted sinner, he did not listen. <laughs> I look away for a second, and I look back, and he's gone. And at first, you're like, ah, and you kind of start looking around, and you look kind of down the aisles, and then what, what turns out to be aggravation starts to creep into, like, fear and panic. 
The first thing I think is what every dad thinks. Uh-oh, my wife's going to kill me, all right? And then, and then you start looking, right? You start looking down the aisles. And then those, who created those little clothes racks that are in a circle? What spawn of Satan came up with that little situation? <laughs> Because JP likes to get in there. I think he thinks if he stays in there long enough, he's going to Narnia, I think, okay? And so I'm looking for his feet and all of this. And then it gets to the point where I'm like, oh, I think he's gone. And there's, there's three doors out of the Dick's Sporting Goods uh, at the town center. And I'm kind of panicking, okay? So at this point, it's like seven years ago or something, um, I was the chaplain for the Jacks Beach Police Department. And they had given me a badge. Looks like a real badge to me. So I found the manager, and I said, Jack's Beats PD, we've got a missing child. You better shut her down. Sure enough, he's like, we got a code blue, code blue. And they shut the doors, and people stood in front of the exit so no one could leave. Now, is that illegal? I'm pretty sure it is. But I had somebody check at the 9 o'clock service. The statutes of limitations on that is three years, so I'm clean. All right, I'm clean. Now, we found him. He was just staring at the escalator. All right, so we got him, took him home. Why? You do whatever it takes. Um, <clears throat> if you've ever been to Disney and seen somebody lose a kid at Disney, right? The happiest place on earth, which is a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. Yeah, so I know it's a lie. You go there, you spend a million dollars, you stand in line for 10 hours, you ride two rides, all right? And on your way home, you still got to buy your kid a $9 balloon or they don't, they'll lose their mind, all right? So there you are. So we're there, you know, just trapped up in it, and it's great. And, and uh, we're, we're right by the castle, and the day's kind of coming to a close, and this woman comes out with a handful of snacks, and she can't find her kid. And her kid's name's Cooper. You know how I know? Because she starts screaming at the top of her lungs, Cooper! Cooper! Just screaming Cooper! What do all the parents do? They're like, are you Cooper? Where's Cooper? All right, we're going to help her out because we know what it's like. She gets to the point where she just throws her snacks on the ground. It's like $750 worth of snacks. It's two corn dogs and a slushie, but whatever. She looks like a fool unless you're a parent that's lost her kid. What do you do? You do whatever it takes. Finally, we found Cooper, all right? So it's that kind of context in which Jesus begins to lay out this parable. Verse 11. And Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Here's what he's saying. Dad, I wish you were dead to me. I want from you, I don't want you. I want what you can give me, I don't want you. So I'd rather have your stuff than you. So for that to happen, you have to be dead for me to get my inheritance. So why don't you just give it to me? It is total rebellion. It is, I want my way over your way. Now, here's what's crazy about this parable. And the dad divided his property between them. So we already know at the very beginning of this parable, this is a different kind of father. I've already told you, I didn't grow up in the timeout generation. If I went to my dad and I said, hey, I want you to give me what's coming to me, he would say, oh, I'm about to give you something. And he would do this Indiana Jones move. You know this thing, one swing, it would come out like that with his belt. And he could fold it up and grab the other end and go, pow, pow, pow. Do you all know this thing? I know some of you don't, and that's your problem, all right? But whatever. I mean, a car backfires around me now, and I'm like, whoa, 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 stop. Still a little gunshot. All right, so my dad ain't doing that. Okay, but his, this dad, by grace, here's what he does. He divided his property between them. That's important. Not just the younger son, but the older son too, which means the older son would get two-thirds of the, of the property, and the younger son would get one-third. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had in Greek. That means he cashed it out. He liquidated it. He sold his part of the inheritance so he could just have cash money so he could spend it. And he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property 
in reckless living. And in this moment, you know what it feels like to him? It feels like freedom. Because anytime we get out from under the authority of a loving father, it always feels like freedom at first. But every road has a destination. And when we get out from the loving protection of a heavenly father, that destination is always a ditch. It's always death or it's always bondage. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Uh Uh-oh, this is not the way he saw it turning out. You see, the Bible says that sin is fun for a season. And I've heard some pastors say, you know, sin's not fun. And I think, well, you're not doing it right, okay? Let me show you, because it's pretty awesome for a while. But it's like parachuting. It's like, it's like skydiving with no parachute. The first little while, exhilarating. Until the moment you realize, uh-oh, this ain't going to end up so well. Every time we step out from under the authority of the Father, or we rebel against the Father. It feels like freedom at first, but it leads to death or bondage. And so, here's what he did. So he went and he hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, or to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Now, we don't think that's that big a deal. Oh, good, he's a farmhand. But in the first century, an Orthodox Jewish boy feeding pigs means that this is the lowest of love. I mean, this brother is, is um, he is ceremonially unclean every day of his life. This would be, I don't know, this would be the equivalent of Rush Limbaugh being the fundraiser for the Clinton Foundation. <laughs> this is Nancy Pelosi as a bellhop at Trump Tower. You understand? This would be like if I was the water boy for the Gators. That's what it would be like, okay? <laughs> Y'all know why you're clapping. You're supposed to hear that and be like, oh, no, that would be terrible. Right. So essentially, this brother is financially and spiritually bankrupt. And he was longing, verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So this brother is at rock bottom. Absolute rock bottom. And and check me here. And that is the grace of God on his life. You see, according to Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is when God gives you everything you want. Okay, you want your inheritance now? Go ahead and take it. And oftentimes, it is the grace of God that brings us to the lowest point in our life. Because there's a whole bunch of us in the room that can't stop and look up to the Almighty God until we get to the lowest place in our life. So I know this is hard to get your mind around. But, it, but some of the most painful things you've been through this past year, financially, spiritually, emotionally, could actually be the grace of God in your life so that you would run to Him and not run from Him. So that you would want Him, not just the stuff from Him him. And that's where, that's where this boy finds himself. In verse 17, but when he came to himself, that little phrase right there, came to himself, the NIV says came to his senses. That is the pivotal moment in this boy's life. It says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? You see, here's just the reality. Until you come to that point, you'll never come running back to God. And it's just got to happen on the inside of you. It's not until God just reveals that to you. There is no repentance without regeneration. And I can't do anything. I can't say something magical that makes that happen in you. But God may be taking you to the lowest point in your life so that you'll come to yourself and think, how in the world did I get here? This was not my plan. This was not my intention. But I've got good news. There's always a chance to come home. 
There's always a chance to come home. And so he comes to himself, and then he repents. He literally repents. Repentance just means to change direction. And so it says in verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father. This is a literal uh, uh, repentance. He goes, I'm not going to the farm. I'm going to my dad's house. I'm going to change directions. And he goes, and I will say to my dad, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You ever done this before? You ever know you're busted? So you start working on your apology on the way there? Don't look at me like this. You know what I'm talking about. Curfew was 12. You're coming in about 1230. And you're trying to coast in with the car off, coming in in neutral, just going to try to sneak in. Don't worry about it. But boom, the light comes on. And you think, I have sinned against you and against heaven. Right? And you're practicing. Don't kill me, Daddy. Here's why. This is what he's doing. He's rehearsing. The problem is he does not understand the love and grace of the Father. Because what he's saying is, plan B is, I will pay you back. I will earn it. Just hire me out. Make me an apprentice of one of your guys, and then I will try to pay you back. Verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. Now, when we hear all that, we think, yeah, that's just normal dad move. If you're sitting on the beach and you see a dad chase down a little kid, you know the wife said, go get him, and then he took off and did what she said. But this is scandalous in the first century. Scandalous. First of all, it says he saw him from a long ways off. You know why? Because he never stopped looking for his son. Every day of his life at the edge of the driveway, he's looking, thinking, this could be the day that my boy comes to his senses and comes popping over the horizon. And people are trying to do business deals with him and sell and buy stuff. And he's like, yeah, 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 hold on, hold on. And the moment the boy crests the the horizon, he sees him from a long ways off. And then he has compassion for him. We don't have a good English word here for the Greek word that we translate compassion. The Greek word is splachma. Splachma. It means from the guts. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Sounds like you puke a little splachma. That's what it is. It's that thing, mama, that you have for your baby when you look at him and you say this crazy stuff like, I'm just going to eat your face. You're like, don't do that. But it's that thing in here, this, this deep, deep love and desire and yearning. He has compassion for him, and then he runs to him. Now listen, in, in the first century, when the crowd, especially the religious people, when they heard that this man was running, they were like, what? No. You see, because in the first century, dignified men did not run, which, by the way, is why I don't run, all right? <laughs> if you ever see me running, call the police. Something has gone horribly wrong. For me or the fellow I'm chasing, okay? So call the police. And so part of the reason it had to do with position, I'm not running to you, you better run about out of me. The other thing is he's a, he's a landowner, he's a dignified man. He's probably got on multiple robes and tunics. And in order for him to run, he's got to gird up his loins or hike up his robe and show everybody man thigh. And that was shameful, as it should be. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that man thigh. Which, by the way, some of you college boys walking around in your mama's shorts, you're showing too much man thigh. Get you some grown man pants, please. All right? Read your Bible. All right, so. But the the first century men didn't run because it was shameful. In this encounter with his son, no shame is heaped upon the boy. He takes all the shame upon himself. It is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the reason he, I think, the reason he runs to him and hugs him is because of this thing called kezezah. 
kezazah was um, what you were supposed to do to a disobedient son. You were to at least exile him or maybe stone him. And by the way, this story, Jesus didn't make make it up. It was a common parable among the day. The problem is he changed the ending. The moment he said there was a man that had two sons, everybody knows, I know how this one goes. And the way the original story goes is when the boy comes back, they kill him so that he can pay for the sins that he has committed against the father. It would be like if I started off a story that said, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know, oh, I know this story, this is Star Wars. And yet Jesus says, well, what this dad does is he does not stone the boy, but he runs to him and he has compassion for him. He has great shame upon himself and he throws his arms around the boy. Why? Because if the rocks start flying, who are they going to hit? The dad is saying, the rocks aren't hitting my boy because this is my son. And you might think he deserves death, but I'm telling you, he is my son. And so if the rocks fly, they hit me and they do not hit my son. And then he keeps going. He keeps getting better. Verse 21. And so the son says to him, remember the apology that he's working on? And the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22. But the father said, this is a Greek for shut your mouth. I'm not even going to listen to your apology. Do you get this? The kid hadn't even gotten through his whole apology yet. And it says, but the father said. Now, you guys are advanced, okay? We do Bible study here every week. At 11.22, so um, who does the Father stand for in this parable? God, good job, good job, God. So instead of but the Father, we could say but God, right? But God. So listen how, um, listen how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Or, in other words, every single one of us has stiff-armed God and said, I don't want you, you could be dead to me, I'm going to do what I want with who I want, when I want, and you can't tell me what to do. But God, chapter, verse 4 of chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy. But God, listen, there's a lot of big buts in the Bible. I like big buts, I cannot lie, okay? Listen to what this says. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, while we were covered with the smell of pigs on us, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The dad sees the boy from a long way off. He has compassion for him, at great shame to himself, runs to his boy and embraces him. And when the boy tries to apologize, the dad interrupts him and says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. These are not random things that he gives the boy. He says, go and get the best robe. Who has the best robe? The dad's robe is the best robe. It's gonna be perfectly pressed and perfectly cleaned. And he says, listen, my my boy is covered in filth, but when people see my boy, they are not gonna see his filth. They are gonna see my perfect robe. 
that he wraps this filthy, sin-soaked boy in the robe of his righteousness. That's what Christ does for every single believer, that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness, that when the world looks at you, they see the breastplate of righteousness. They see God's perfection. When God looks at you, he sees his son's perfection, not the filth that we bring to the party. That's the first thing that happens. And then he says, and give me a ring. Not just any ring, the signet ring, the family ring. And when he puts the ring on the boy's finger, he's officially adopting him back into the family. That there will be a day sometime in the future when this boy will sign official documents and he will stamp it with the signet ring, his family's name, because he has the name of his father, because he is his son. He's saying, look, you are officially back in the family. This ring's going to show the whole world you're in our family. He says, put some shoes on the boy. You see, servants had to go around barefoot, especially in the house. And then the boy gets, the boy gets shoes. Why? Because he is a son. And, and you got to know that some of the servants might be going, what did he do to deserve a robe? Nothing. He came home. And what did he do to deserve your ring? Nothing. But that's my boy, and he has my name. And what did he do to deserve shoes? Nothing. But he cannot earn what has been freely given to him by his father. And that is the response. I hope you hear this if you've been running from God. You do not come back to anger. You come back to compassion. And then it keeps going, man. It's, um, by the way, the word prodigal means lavish. I think the prodigal one here is the father. It says this, and he says, And bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. The King James says, Make merry. <laughs> That's Bible talk for we're going to have a party. For this is my son who was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to party. God is a party God. He celebrates when his children come home. Zephaniah 3.17 says it this way. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. God is a party God. You realize the church ought to be a place of parties that we ought to celebrate like crazy every single time one of God's lost children comes home. That's what this thing is all about. And so he throws a party. Verse 25, and now the older son, now remember, remember his audience, remember Jesus' audience. It was because the religious people said, what are those people doing here? And he's saying, listen, the reason we celebrate, the reason we get excited is just like a shepherd celebrates when he finds a sheep, and it's just like a dad would celebrate over a a lost child. And now the older son, this is to represent the Pharisees, he was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. He heard, now I get it, you hear music. How do you hear dancing? That's a party. If you can hear, that, you listen to me, Southern Baptist, all right, I'm a recovering Baptist too, so listen. I mean, I was taught, we don't, you know, there's no dancing, it's right there in the word, dancing, you see, you don't do that, all right? Well, the problem is the Bible. God is a dancing God. God is a party God, and this dad throws a kind of party where you can hear the music and dancing. Not, the, not a Sunday school, elementary school party. Remember those where your teacher's like, oh, next week we're going to have a party. No, we're not. You're not going to teach. We're going to eat cupcakes. But that's not a party because we still have to sit down and be quiet. I mean, this is a raging kind of party. The brother, the older brother, can hear dancing from somewhere out in the field. What is that? I hear the band, but I hear dancing. This means like the old people are doing the twist, you know. That's all they can get to, but praise God. Everybody my age is doing one of those dances where they tell you what to do, so you know what to do. Right foot two times. Everybody clap your hands. Like, I am such a dancer, man. This is great. All the kids doing the wobble, wobble, baby. You know, whatever that thing is. 
This is usually when JP's like, Dad, I wouldn't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> so to borrow a verse from Jesus in one of the previous parables about the sheep, he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In other words, Jesus is like, why are these people here? Because the Father parties over, celebrates, rejoices over one that would come home. And this big brother's like, what is happening in there? And the big brother keeps going. Verse 26, he says, and he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. You see, when you're a Pharisee, you don't want to talk to the Father. You don't mind talking to the people, but you don't want to talk to the Father. And he said to him, your brother's come home and your, and your father has killed the fattened calf. That's Greek for he's lost his mind. He was running and hiking up his robe and hugging and kissing and giving another robe, and now he's killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but the older brother was angry and refused to go in. You see, the reality is, is that both the older son and the younger son were both lost. The older son and the younger son had both rejected the father. You see, all of us reject God. Some people reject God with heroin. Some people reject God with Sunday school. The younger brother, his sin is, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, he had the sin of the fruit. Don't eat that. You can't tell me what to do. I do what I want, when I want, with who I want. You ain't the boss of me. His sin was licentiousness. But the older brother, his sin was the fig leaf. God, I don't need you. I can cover over my own sin and shame. If the younger son's sin was rebellion, then the older son's sin is religion. You see, yeah, Jesus saves the prostitute and the stripper and the drug addict, and he also saves uh, the deacon and the Sunday school attender. And it's all by the same cross of Jesus Christ. And you see what's going on here. The brother's ticked, man. The brother's ticked because he thinks he's entitled. And he's like, I'm not going into that party. I'm not going in. By the way, this place should be a party for people coming home. And it should start in the parking lot. Like when you roll up into one of our parking lots, you can think, what is going on here? What is going on here is we are celebrating not what any of us have done, but what Christ has done for us on the cross. And then when you walk in the doors, you're like, wow, people are so friendly here. Yeah, because we're pretty stinking excited because we're at a party thrown by God, and it's, for, and it's about God, but it's for you. It's a really big deal. And if you come in here and you think, well, they don't take themselves very seriously, if you're at a party that takes itself way too seriously, it's not a good party. This is not a good party. And listen, I, I met Jesus at a camp where we kind of served the party God that celebrated when his lost kid come home. And then I would find myself in these churches and I would think, this is more like a funeral than a party. I'm pretty sure that the tomb is empty. We can quit playing the funeral music. You know, I wanted to say to our folks, are you guys okay? You should tell your face because it looks like misery. What are we doing here? And so I'm not saying we don't talk about serious things, for sure. But fundamentally, when we gather together as the saints, we are saying, welcome home, younger brother and older brother alike. This is a place where God sings loudly over you and rejoices every single time one of his lost children come home. Now, by the way, to make that happen, we need a lot of party planners. We've got to have a whole lot of people help us pull off the party. The party doesn't just happen. Every mama right now is like, you tell them, Pastor. They think I got some kind of Thanksgiving fairy just flew in here and cooked a turkey. All right, mamas, you know what I'm talking about? 
So every week we need greeters and we need, we need all kind of people. And so if you'll take out your notes, everybody take out your notes and you'll look over here, it says serve opportunities. We would like to invite you to join the party planning to be a greeter, to work in our new gen, to work in the parking lot, those kinds of things. And it's perforated, which is Hebrew, for to tear away. So at the end of the service, when we're responding, there's gonna be some people with baskets at the doors and you fill out where you are gonna serve and then you just drop it off on your way out. And the reason is because if you are excited that God saved you, then help me make an exciting kind of environment where, where we can welcome people home. That's what that is all about. But the big brother, he's like, I ain't going in. I ain't going in. Come on, you've been there before, right? It's like 20 minutes before Thanksgiving. Somebody gets ticked off and they won't come out of the room. And you're thinking, oh, what are you doing? You're going to ruin this for everybody. And you go in there and what do you say? I'll tell you what I say. I'm like, what are you doing? You're going to march your butt in there. You're going to sit down with a smile on your face and the beatings will continue until the attitude improves. That's what I do. <laughs> this is not what the father does. Man, this, this part kind of breaks my heart. He says this. And his father came out and entreated him. First of all, he came out. You see, the father's consistent. He goes running after the younger son, and he comes out after the older son, and he meets both of them exactly where they are. He meets the younger son in his rebellion, and he meets the older son in his religion, and he's saying, listen, um, the, the younger son was stuck in a pigsty. Your pigsty are the rules that you're trying to obey because you think you can earn my approval. And it says he entreats him. He begs him. He pleads with him. He goes, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? We've got a, we've got a party in here. What are you doing out here? This party is for you too. Would you please come to the party? The father comes out and entreats him. Notice that Jesus in and of himself is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with him. And the older son, he answers the father. He goes, look, these many years I have served you. You see, he saw himself as a servant, not a son. He said, this many years I have served, I have worked for you. And I never, I never disobeyed your command. Yeah, right. Yeah, you never even gave me a young goat. To which I think the father's like, what? A boat? You want a boat? I'd get you a boat. Oh, goat. You said goat? Are you even being serious right now? You want a goat. Listen, we've got a tent. We've got a live band. We've got filet. We've got crab legs. Everybody knows happiness is found in a crab leg. It is in there. They're about to start the electric slide. Everybody can do that one. Come on, bro. This is for you. And the older brother, the religious guy, the Pharisee, he's more interested in what he can get from his dad instead of his dad himself. He's like, you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not brother of mine, when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. In other words, he's saying, this isn't fair. I earned it. He squandered it. The religious person will say, God, what are you doing to me? I obeyed. I, I waited. I did money the right way. I did sex the right way. I didn't go see Terminator 2 when it came out. You owe me stuff. Here's a great way to determine if you're a Pharisee or not. And let me just confess, man, I kind of grew up in the sinner and tax collector crowd. That was my crowd. But I've been doing, I've been a professional Christian for the majority of my life now. So I think I find myself in the Pharisee scribe crowd. And I have huge compassion for the sinners and tax collectors. Yeah, if you're a stripper, you're a prostitute, you're a drug dealer, you're a drug addict, welcome home. It's crazy how my heart is soft for you. 
But if you're a fundamentalist, kind of Pharisee person, I can be very judgmental about your judgmentalism. Here's how you know if you're a Pharisee. When you see, when you see sin, I mean, when you just see sin, does it stir in you disgust or compassion? Because there are times I can get disgusted by religious people instead of having compassion for them like the Father has. You see, here's what landed on me. On Wednesday night, JP got sick, like throw up sick, projectile, you know, exercising a demon, head spin around, pea soup, you know what I'm saying. Google the exorcist, that kind of sick. And he did it all night, according to the report Gretchen gave me the next day, okay? And so <laughs> Thursday, I'm trying to like nurse him back quick, you know, here, drink this, drink this, drink this. And then he's like, nope, and it came right back out, you know, and you're like, oh gosh, all right. And so as I'm about to leave the house to come here for 722, I went into his room to pray for him. And man, you know, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a virus. It's not, it's nothing compared to what a whole lot of people have to go with their sick children. But I'm looking at him and I just, he just looks pitiful. He's just all balled out and his head hurts. And it's like, you can't do anything to help. And in that moment, I didn't have disgust for him. Although the things he did were disgusting. But he's not disgusting. He's my boy. And he's not the sickness. He's just sick. And so when you see somebody you got to understand this. We have to understand this. People are not disgusting. That we should have compassion for people because sin is a sickness. Sin is not just bad choices. Don't you? We know that. Like it's much, much deeper than that. Sin tempts us and causes us and, and takes us to places that we would never, ever go on our own. And when we as saved people see someone sinning, are we filled with disgust or compassion? Because the heart of the Father is that he is filled with compassion. Verse 31, and so he says, so the dad says to the older son, DSV says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. That, that word son, it literally means child. And he's not saying it pejoratively. He's not saying, you baby. It's like a term of endearment. It's a different word than older son and younger son. In my house, it would be buddy row. That's what my dad called me growing up, buddy row. I don't know what it means. I don't know where it came from. I just heard it my whole life. He'd say, buddy row. Until I had a younger brother, and then he started calling him Buddy Rowe, and I became number one son. I like that better, all right? But when JP was born, as I began to talk to him, guess what came out of my mouth? Hey, Buddy Rowe, even though I've vowed I would never be like my dad, and now I am him. I walk through the house and, you know, cut off lights. Anybody in this room? I do all that dumb stuff. We're fishing. What'd you catch him on, right? In the mouth, all that dad stuff, you know? My dad even rests his head on his tooth like that. And I think, what, is, what? That's the weirdest thing in the world. Sure enough, Gretchen will be like, hey, Perry Martin. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, ah, it's happening. <laughs> but it is a term of endearment. And so I go into JP's room to pray for him. And I just say, buddy, Ro, I'm praying for you. This is what the dad is doing. He's entreating his son. He's like, listen, my son, my boy, my child. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Literally, remember, he's already divided and given him two-thirds of his property. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you hung up on a goat? The fatty calf has been yours from the very beginning. Won't you come to the party? And then he says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He said, I will not make apology for celebrating your brother. And notice what he does not say. He does not say because your brother was bad, and he's come home, and he's going to try to be better. But he was dead, and now he's alive. But he entreats the older brother. 
He invites the older brother. Listen, this party is also for you. Do not let your religion keep you from a relationship with the Father. So I want to ask you just straight up. Is it time for you to come to your senses and to repent or turn around from your rebellion or your religion and come home to the open arms of an everlasting father? Some of you think you're so good that you don't need it. You're absolutely wrong, but you're invited to the party too by the grace of Jesus Christ. And some of you think you're so bad that he would never invite you. You're absolutely wrong. Your sin pales in comparison to the grace of Jesus Christ poured out at the cross. And the father comes running to you at great expense to himself. And he says, come home. Here's the way Paul says it in the book of Romans. Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You see, both of these boys were ruled by fear. The younger son, was he had the fear of punishment. And the older son, he had the fear of entitlement. I earned this. And the Bible says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So my question is you, do, to you is this, do you need to come home? Maybe for the very first time you've come to your senses or you've come to yourself and you understand that you can't earn it and that God has done it for you and the invitation is for you. And that you could rightly say, I am no longer a slave of fear. I'm no longer a slave of my rebellion and I'm no longer a slave of some kind of religious rules, but I am a child of God. What Jesus makes possible for us is to know God Almighty as everlasting Father. Are you ready to come home? If you'd please bow your head and close your eyes. And if you thought, in this moment, you thought, wow, Jesus was not telling some story. He was telling my story. That I am the younger brother or I am the older brother. And today, for the very first time, you would like to receive the invitation of the everlasting Father to come join the party. If you are ready for God to run to you, to have compassion for you, to throw the robe of his righteousness around you, to give you his name and put shoes on your feet. And today is the day that you're ready to come home. Would you just raise your hand and say, Father, here I am. I'm sick of running and I'm sick of trying to earn it. I want to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You lift your hand high in the air and you just tell him in your own words. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you because you first loved us. And Jesus, I thank you that you are the perfect older brother. That you said to the Father, I'll go on a search and rescue mission for our lost younger brother. That I will pay the full expense of the entire party and I will emcee that thing. And God, I thank you that in this place, in every location, in every venue, that salvation belongs to you. God, that you are mighty to save and that you exult over your children with singing and dancing. And God, I thank you for the men and women, the sons and daughters, that this day will come home to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand as we respond? We respond the same way all the time. The gospel demands a response. We respond by joining our voices together. And listen, we ought to sing in such a way like the party that the Father threw. They ought to hear us down at Dick's Wings and think, what is happening at church today, okay? That's what we do when we join our voices together. And a part of what this altar situation is, is it's an opportunity for you to come and kneel before the throne of the Almighty King who just happens to be your dad. 
and you cast whatever cares you have upon him because he cares for you. And we respond by bringing our tithes and our offerings, our first and our best. It's the party fund. This is how we throw gospel-centered parties around the world when his children like us respond to him. So however God leads you, let us respond.